Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sermon Podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others so that you can go and live a life driven by faith. One of the things we're promised when we start to follow Jesus is that we're going to have a new life. We're a new creation, the Bible says. But sometimes it can be hard to get a hold of that new life and feel like we're living it out day by day. In our current sermon series, we're talking through one specific chapter of the Bible, Colossians chapter 3. And this chapter answers two questions for us. First, it tells us what the new life we have in Christ should look like. And secondly, it tells us how we can obtain it. My heart's desire is that you would find and live out new life in Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll listen to these messages and I hope you enjoy them because I believe God has something he would like to say to you. This morning is the last week that we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And so in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to read all 17 verses at once. This is the first time over the six weeks we've read all 17 verses together because this morning we'll add this last verse to what we've been learning from what Paul is teaching here, and I think it will bring it all together for us. I really believe that in these 17 verses, as we talk about the keys to living a new life, for those of us who at one point in our life, we didn't follow Jesus with our life, and now that we do, we agree that life should look different. If at one point I didn't follow Jesus, and now I do, my life should look different. I should live differently. I should think differently. I should act differently. I really think in these 17 verses, Paul gives you and I important principles on what it looks like to get rid of the old and to live in the new. So I know this is a little bit longer section of Scripture than we would normally read, but I encourage you to follow along and to listen to what God is saying here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. This is what Paul writes. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A couple of weeks ago, my seven-year-old daughter came up to me and said something that I didn't expect my daughter to say and, and really thought would never come out of her mouth. Uh, maybe until later in life, she came up to me and she said, Dad, we have got to start watching Jeopardy. And I said, why do we have to start watching Jeopardy? She said, Dad, there's this guy, James, and he is beating everybody. Every night he wins over and over and over again. And, she, and so we started watching a couple of times. How many got sucked into watching James on Jeopardy or following this story, huh? Anyone else do this? Uh, probably more than we're willing to raise their hand there and admit it, right? You saw it on the news, though. You saw James Holtzauer with this uh, amazing run on Jeopardy over the last few weeks. And I don't know about you, but when I watched him, and I only saw you know, maybe three or four full episodes of him, uh, one of the things that was so impressive to me wasn't just the amount of money that he won, although it is an impressive number uh, that he won at the end of the day, but it's the ability to have, just in your mind, that breadth of knowledge, and not just the knowledge, but the ability to pull it up so quickly. When I read the titles, when I read the categories in Jeopardy, I immediately know that I'm out of most of them. If it says 15th century literature, that's it for me. I know nothing in that category. But here they go down, 200, 400, or if it's double jeopardy, 400, 800. And, and it's not just James. He's the one that can buzz in first. But you can see all three contestants hitting their buzzer on some obscure piece of knowledge. And it's impressive to me, not just the fact that they would know it, but that they know it so quickly. I also saw a couple of weeks ago, did you see this? Or maybe it was just last week that they had the National Spelling Bee. And the students that were involved in the National Spelling Bee were so bright uh, when it came to spelling the words that did you see how many students tied for first place? They had an eight-way tie for first place in the National Spelling Bee. That means there are eight students that were so smart and spelling obscure words that they just gave up and they were like, that's it, you're all winners. And they just walked off. Very, like, very modern day. They were all winners. Back in the day, two generations ago, they would have stayed four days until there was a winner. But now everybody's winners and they just leave, right? And the ability, the ability to, to know how the principles of spelling and just to do it on the spot like that under so much pressure is amazing to me. One of the best things that ever happened in my life was Microsoft Word started underlining all the words I was misspelling because it's so difficult to do it. And I could just right-click it and fix it in a second. I can't imagine having that sort of mind that can retain and bring up those things so quickly. I'm thankful for Google. Does anyone else remember? Does anyone else remember when you didn't know something? And the only way to check it was to go to the books that were on your shelf. And you had your Encyclopedia Britannica or you had your World Book or something along those lines. And there they were, all the letters. And you would go, if you had a question, and you would go to the books that you owned. Or you would talk to the people that you knew. And if they didn't know or if the book didn't have the answer, you just didn't know. But it's not like that anymore. I just pull up my phone, and if you ask me a question on 15th century lit, I don't know it off the top of my head, but give me three or four seconds, and I can probably get you the answer. We like that about our world, 
The fact that we don't necessarily have to retain all the information, but if we don't know it, we can find out very quickly. You know, it strikes me when I think about that and how I use Google, how we all use Google, just to find the answers we don't know immediately. That for many of us, that's how we use the Bible as well. That's really what the Bible is in our life. It's this reference book that we pull out when we're unsure or we're not quite uh, certain on what the answer is. It's kind of like a rule book that sits on the sidelines of our life, and when we're wondering what the rule is or, or we're wondering what we're supposed to do, we pull it out, and some of us have done this before. I've certainly done this before. You just start flipping. There's thousands of pages, and you start flipping, and you're hoping by some divine inspiration you'll move your finger, and you'll find the perfect verse that answers your question or that gives you the direction that you're seeking, and sometimes that happens. But for many of us, that's what the Bible becomes. It becomes only something that we look at as some sort of reference book. It sits on our shelf, and then when we need it, we need an answer to something, we go and try to find it. Or for many of us, we don't even pull the book off the shelf. We go to Google, and we type in something like, what does the Bible say about love? What does the Bible say about this? And it's this reference guide in our life. I want to suggest to you today that when we treat the Bible only as a reference guide, I'm not saying it's incorrect to do that, but when it's only a reference guide to us, we run in eventually into a big problem. And the problem is this. The Bible speaks about some things very specifically. The rules are in there. Certain life situations, if you want the answer, the Bible will tell you definitively. So, for example, it's 2 in the morning, Your spouse is next to you, snoring so loudly you can't sleep. And you're not proud of this. You're not proud of this. But we'll just, I'm not going to ask you to raise hand. But this thought crosses your mind. Would it be okay just to take my pillow and just, you know, help out? And then you go to the book. And very clearly, no, you can't do that. You cannot do that no matter how aggravated you are. But there's other life situations that are way more complicated. And you know this. I don't have to tell you this. The world's changed in 2,000 years. And so there are things that you face today that look very different than when the book was written. And so you pull out the book and you say, all right, how do I deal with social media ethics? Or you pull out the book and say, how do I make life decisions about my career? Where's the one-to-one ratio that tells me exactly what job I'm supposed to take and exactly what I'm supposed to do and exactly what I'm supposed to say? Where's the Bible? Where's the answer when it comes to healthcare ethics and what it looks like in our world today? How do we, what does the Bible have to say about internet use and how the modern workplace functions? What does the Bible have to say about how dating works in today's world? And for many of us that treat the Bible just as a reference book or a reference guide, and that's all it is to us, the Bible, over time, becomes something that we start to look at as quite irrelevant in our world. That's how many people in our world view the Bible, because it's nothing more than a reference guide. And because it doesn't speak absolutely specifically to every single thing that we walk through in our world today, many people declare it irrelevant. And let me ask you, how do you know? How do you know when you go outside of this room and live your life as a student 2,000 years after this book was written or a business person or in your family? How do you know that you're making the right decision all along the way? How do you know 
that as you walk through your day and you make all of these choices and all of these decisions, that you are doing exactly what God wants you to do. Wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of principle or some sort of rule that we could have in our minds and in our hearts that it wasn't something that we had to Google or look up, but it was always there, something that we could pull back up almost immediately and know that it's true, that would guide our decision-making in every single thing that we did so that whatever decision we were making or whatever action we were taking or whatever it is that we were saying, we could be confident that we were acting in line with what God is calling us to do. I think right here at the end of these 17 verses, Paul in one verse gives you and I just that. He gives us something that we can hang on to So that when we're walking through life and we encounter decisions and situations where we have to do something or say something, we can be sure that what we were doing is in line with what God would want us to do. In fact, Paul begins this verse covering everything. He makes this broad blanket statement. He says it this way. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, and whatever you do, You know, I kind of like it when there is a one-to-one ratio between what I'm facing in life and what the Bible says. It's so clear. I kind of like it when it is just black and white. It's the same situation people faced back then in the Bible. It's the exact same situation today, and certainly we have those things. And I can go back and I can say, this is what it says, and so this is what we are going to do. The reality is, Life is much more complex than that, and there are certain situations where it can be difficult to fully understand what it is that God's calling us to do. And I wonder, why do you think Paul would make this blanket statement in whatever you do, in word or deed, in whatever you would say or whatever you would do, why wouldn't he try to list all this stuff out? Is he running out of ink? Is he running out of paper? Is he running out of time? Why wouldn't Paul try to list this all out? Why wouldn't he give us all the situations? Why wouldn't Paul say, listen, if you're trying to make a really difficult decision, here's what you do. Listen, if you are trying to deal with your children in a certain way, here's what you do. Listen, if you're trying to decide whether or not to do this or that and are wondering what God wants you to do, here's exactly what you do. Rather than that, he makes this broad blanket statement in whatever you do. Well, I think the reason that Paul makes such a broad statement is because Paul is not writing for us a reference book here. I don't think that's his intent. I don't think Paul is saying, I'm writing a letter so that it can sit on the shelf and only be looked at when people have a question or people have a problem and they can come back and reference it. I don't think that's his intent. Paul's not writing a reference book. In fact, God didn't write a reference book for you and for I. What God has given to us in his word in the Bible and what Paul is writing here is not a reference book. It's not a rule book. It is a relationship book. Paul is detailing for us what it looks like to live in relationship with God and live in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's what this whole section has been about. Right away in verse 1, therefore, your life is hidden with 
Christ, he tells us right at the beginning. If you follow him, you have a relationship with him, Paul's saying. So since you have a relationship, let that affect everything that you do. Put off these things. Remember we talked about this, immorality, covetousness, and idolatry. Get rid of wrath and anger and slander and put on other things out of this relationship. Humility, kindness, meekness, bear with one another, forgive one another. Let the peace of God rule your hearts and above it all, put on love. And now he says, and go and whatever you do. See, Paul is talking about relationship with God. And the Bible is a relationship book. This is God revealing to you and to me from the very creation of the world until the time that he is going to return who he is and what his heart is, what his will is for his people. And you and I learn who our God is as we interact with this book and we understand what it looks like to live in relationship with him day by day. I don't think God designed it that we would all just be a bunch of robotic rule followers. I don't think that's what he desires with us. I think he desires relationship. I think it's seen in how God tells children to be in relationship with their parents. Some of us know what it's like to have a rule-based relationship with our parents, don't we? And at some point, parents have to come up with rules. But there's something difficult, there's something tricky that happens when our relationship with our parents is just about rules. Our parents come up with rules and they give us all the different rules that we're supposed to follow. And then what do we do as children? Pretty much everyone in here has been a child at some point, I would guess. What do you do as a child when the teacher makes the rules, or the parent makes the rules? You immediately start to process which situations have no rules so that you know what you can get away with. You start to process the punishment that's related to those rules and start to ask yourself uh, if the punishment is worth the crime because sometimes it's just worth it to break the rules so that you can receive the punishment. And you start to try to think through the loopholes. So if your parent says to you in a relationship that's only based on the rules, curfew is at 10 o'clock. And you're a 14 or 15-year-old teenager. Your brain starts working and you start saying, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean in the house at 10 o'clock? Or does that mean pulling into the driveway at 10 o'clock? I mean, as long as my intention is to leave by 10, maybe that's good enough. Maybe as long as I'm in the car at 10 o'clock and I call on the cell phone at 10 o'clock and say I'm on my way, maybe that counts as making curfew by 10. But God, when he's talking to children about how to view their parents, does not say, children, obey your parents and the rules that they set. He says, children, obey your parents and honor, honor your father and mother. See, that's different. Honor is different than just following the rules. Honor is taking into account the entire relationship of who that person is, who the authority is that's over me. We'll use parents in this example. And understanding who they are and who I am and what their position is and what my position is and what action could I take to show them the greatest amount of honor. And when I look at it in that way, when I look at it in that way, and I say to myself, well, what is the thing that I could do that would honor 
my father and mother. Not just follow their rules, but honor them. It probably means I show up in the house at 945. It's a totally different framework. And so often we're used to seeing the Bible the same way we view the dictionary when we play Scrabble. We play the game of Scrabble. The dictionary sits on the side. That is the rule book. That is the determining factor. If someone does something that seems a little bit outside the lines, we open up the dictionary and we see if the dictionary says it's right or if it's wrong. And for many of us, that's how the Bible has functioned in our world. We play the game of life. Something seems a little out of sorts. We open up the book. We see what the book says. We see what the rule is. And then we make our decisions accordingly. Now, that is partly how the Bible functions in our life as a reference book. But that is not why the book was written. The book was written because God desires relationship with his people. And if we are going to honor him in whatever we do, then we have to understand who he is, what his will is, and what his plan is. And we live not just as people who are trying to follow all the rules and not get in trouble, but people who are in relationship with a great God and we honor him. That's why Paul can write in whatever you do and whatever you say. He's giving us a guide to live. Not a regulation for every single thing we're going to face. Paul says you want to be sure that you're doing whatever God wants you to do in your life. You want to be sure that you're about to make a decision and it's in line with what God would want you to do? Here's two things. Two things to think about, two things to hold on to. And if we get these two things right, if you and I and our decision-making and what we do in our lives, if we get these two things right, I think we can know with confidence that we are doing what God would call us to do. And all you do, Paul says, and whatever you do and whatever you say, it's the first thing he tells us. Represent Jesus well. In all that you do, represent Jesus well. In fact, this is the way he says it. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. For many of us, that phrase, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, it's just become a tagline in prayer. It's kind of like an like a over and out. This conversation's about to be over. Or it's something that in a long prayer is just a signal to us finally that we're about done here. In the name of Jesus, amen. But the way Paul's using it here, the, what he's saying to you and to me is something very profound that we ought not to miss. Paul is saying when you go out and you do something or you say something, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are doing it as a representative of Jesus Christ himself. That you and I, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, are his representatives no matter what we're doing and no matter what we are saying. And Paul says to, to the people in Colossae, and he says it to us, don't forget this. And whatever you do in word or deed, you need to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Paul is saying here is something similar to what he says in another book that he wrote, in another letter. He's saying, you are, as followers of Jesus Christ, Christ's ambassadors in whatever you're doing or saying. You think about ambassadors when it comes to the political realm. An ambassador that's traveling from one country to another country has authority to make decisions and take action 
But the only reason they have authority is because they're doing it in the name of the leader who has sent them. An ambassador has power and authority, an ambassador from the United States to another country, an ambassador from another place in the world to the United States has authority to speak and to act only because the leadership back in the country who has sent them has granted them authority to do so. And they've said, go represent us well. And what you do and what you say, go represent us. And Paul's saying the same thing happens to us. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to go and live our lives and everything that we do and everything that we say in the name of Jesus. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, in what I'm doing, in what I'm saying, could I put Jesus' name on this? Could I put his name on this? And the only way to know that is to be in relationship with him, to understand who he is what he said, what he did. Sometimes we forget we represent things larger than ourselves. How many athletes, celebrities, business people have gotten themselves on trouble on social media because they post things and they forget that they represent something much bigger than themselves, that it's not just them as individuals posting something, but they're posting it as an employee or an executive of a certain company or as a member of a certain team. And that when they say something, even though it's their individual account, they're representing a larger whole. And people get themselves in big trouble, don't they? There was an article in the New York Times back in 2015, and the headline read this, read like this. It said, how one stupid tweet blew up Justine Sacco's life. And maybe you remember this story. It actually happened a couple years before 2015. Justine Sacco was 30 years old, working as an executive at a company called IAC, a big communications company. She had a Twitter account, just her personal account, had something like 132 followers, just her friends and family. She was taking a plane ride from New York to South Africa to visit some family. And before she got on the plane, she just started tweeting while she was sitting in JFK. And she said, she made fun of one of the janitors at the the airport and poked a little fun at some of the other passengers. And then she made uh, what was a pretty insensitive comment about her trip to South Africa. Got on the plane, shut her phone off. While she was up in the air, do you remember this? Her little tweet of her little account of a hundred and some people became the number one trending topic on Twitter. And by the time she landed in South Africa, she had lost her job as an executive with IAC because she forgot. It wasn't just her little Twitter account. She represented something bigger. And that's you and I as followers of Jesus Christ. It's not just our little life. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and everything that I do and everything that I say, I do it and to do it in his name. And so we ought to ask ourselves in the decisions I'm making, in my family life, in my dating relationships, in my business, at school, could I put Jesus' name on this? Everything you post on social media at the end, could you put Jesus' name at the end of it? You're to do it as a representative of him. 
Paul says something else to us. He says, you want to be sure that in everything that you do, you're honoring God in that decision? First of all, represent Jesus. Secondly, give God the credit. Represent Jesus and give God the credit. This is the way he says it. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just think with me for a moment. What's the difference between a Christian song and a secular song? What's the difference? You might say it's the lyrics, but let's be honest, there's plenty of lyrics that we could just change out and they'd be the same. I love you, you're all I need, you're everything. Switch them out, it's the same words. What's the difference? I would suggest to you that the difference is from the artist, from the producer of the music, from everyone who's involved, who is getting the glory. Who's receiving the glory? If at the end of the day, it's about the person producing the music, we've missed the mark. I would suggest to you that song's very secular, even if it says God in the song. But if at the end of the day, all of those people fade away and God gets the glory, then it's very Christian. And Paul's saying to you and to me, in everything that you do, you want to make sure you're doing what God wants you to do? Can you put Jesus' name on it? And is he ultimately getting the credit? You have a great win in business? That's wonderful. Who gets the glory? Your family is blessed in some way? Fantastic. Who gets the credit for that? You finally get the degree that you've been working for? Who gets the glory for that? It's an important question. When I think about this, I think of someone uh, like the famous composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. He had a couple of things that he would do when he would compose music. And many of his pieces have both of these things on them. At the very beginning of the piece, he would start. And when the score was blank, you can see it up in the left-hand corner, maybe on this image. When the score was blank, he'd put two little initials in the top left-hand corner, J.J., which is short for the Latin for Jesus' help. And they would compose the score, and when it was all said and done, he would sign either his name or his initials, so JSB or his name, and then there would be another set of three initials, SDG, short for the Latin, Sola Dea Gloria, for his glory, for God's glory alone. And sometimes he wrote for church and sometimes he wrote for other people, but no matter whether he was writing for church or whether he was writing for a quote-unquote secular audience, Bach would do this similar procedure. Jesus' help and for God's glory alone. Is that how you're approaching your decisions? Is that how you're approaching your work? When it's time to start the day, Jesus, help me. And at the end of the day, when things go well, for God's glory alone. It's so easy to compartmentalize our life, isn't it? Say, well, in here, in this room, we're Christians. In small group, we're Christians. When we come to church functions, we're Christians. But out there, we're students and business people, and we have to act like that. We have to think like that first. What Paul's saying to you and me, you want to make sure 
that God, that you're doing exactly what God wants you to do, no matter what you do and no matter what you say, you need to, first of all, be in this book proactively and not reactively. If we treat this only as a reference guide in our life, only as a rule book, we will only look at it reactively. When life gets tough, we have big questions, and there's nothing wrong with going to the Bible. Hear what I'm saying? Nothing wrong to go, going to the Bible when life is tough and you have questions. But the idea is that we would read this proactively as a relationship guide, that we would read it and God would speak to us by his spirit, that we would come to understand him more so that when we get into the situation, we would already be well prepared to act or speak the way that God would call us to. Because we are living in such relationship with him and we know who our God is. That we can act and speak in a way that represents Jesus in a way that gives him the glory. This is the way St. Augustine said it. St. Augustine lived in the 4th century and 5th century AD. He said it this way. He said, love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do whatever you please. Get the relationship right. Be so in tune with who your God is. And then you'll go and you'll live the life he calls you to live. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Some of you are facing big moments right now in life. Some of you are very confused as to what you're supposed to do. Some of you have made decisions and are saying things in your life, and you know right here, right now, that there is no way you could be making those decisions and doing those things and saying those things, and at the end of it, Put Jesus' name on it. You know that in the way that you're doing your work and in the way that you're leading your family and in the way that you're doing your schoolwork, that this is really about you and not about God. If our desire is really to live this new life in Christ, if, if God if God really has a better plan for your life than anything that you can come up with on your own, then we ought to trust him enough that in whatever we do, in whatever we say, we represent Jesus and give him the glory. Invite our worship team forward as we prepare to close this morning. And I invite you, if you would, would you stand for a moment with me? In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing that song one more time. This is my desire to honor you. And everything I do and everything I say, this is my desire to honor you. And as we sing that song, maybe you are here this morning, and you're feeling like God's saying to you, listen, you're making these decisions, you're saying these things, but what you're doing and what you're saying is not representing me well. And you're not giving me the glory. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're facing those decisions and you just want to be sure that as you walk through this process, you do exactly what God is calling you to do. While we sing this last song, my wife Lori and I will be in the back. If you'd like someone to pray with you on this or anything else you bring into the room with you this morning, we would love to pray with you. So come and let's pray together.
God, we admit to you this morning that there are places in our lives where we go and we do things and we say things and we do them outside of relationship with you. God, thank you that you're not the kind of God that just gives us a bunch of rules and punishes us when we break them, but you are a God who desires relationship with us. Help us to do well, not just in receiving your grace, but then doing the hard work of living lives and doing and saying things that represent Jesus well and give you the glory. We trust you, Lord, and believe you have an amazing plan better than anything we could come up with on our own. We want to serve you and honor you in all we do. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at M-T Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.